Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Our Shells, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Kate Maxwell. Kate was born in London and has worked as a journalist and editor in both London and New York. Her first novel, Hush, was shortlisted for the Bridport Prize Peggy Chapman Andrews Award. Welcome to Our Shelves, Kate. It's really lovely to have you here today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start by talking a little bit about Hush, your debut novel, which is being published by Virago next month. And in it, you've got a central protagonist um, named Stevie, and she's a single, unattached woman in her late 30s who is living the kind of dream in New York. She's got a brilliant job. She's got a load of wonderful friends. But she decides that she really wants to have a baby and that time is kind of running out. So she decides to relocate back to London, where she um, where she's from. And find a sperm donor and kind of make a go of it by herself but then when the baby arrives things don't really go according to plan do they she finds herself struggling and wondering whether she's actually made quite a huge mistake um and I'm so fascinated to find out what it was about this particular side of motherhood which I think is probably a side we don't really hear talked about that much was it that that really interested you about this I think it was. Yes, I think you're right. I think with, with a couple of exceptions that perhaps we'll talk about, I, I, I don't think that the realities of early motherhood have been covered all that much in fiction. And there are a couple of taboos I, I wanted to take on as well. First of all, the, the love at first sight myth, the idea that um, everyone automatically falls in love with their baby the minute they cap eyes on him or her, which doesn't always happen and, and doesn't happen for Stevie. And also the expectation that women transition seamlessly uh, from one life to another when they have children, um, in Stevie's case, from independence to and a big job to, to looking after a tiny baby. And it's a, a huge change, I think, and, and can have a huge impact on one's sense of self. Um, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily come naturally to everyone and it can take time. Um, I think more recently, a, f a few books, um, perhaps nonfiction more than fiction, but but have, have taken on some of these themes. Um, I haven't read the book, actually, but I've, I've seen the film uh, The Lost Daughter, Eleanor Ferrante's uh, book, which uh, obviously talks, uh, talks about sort of maternal 
ambivalence, uh, the character uh, leaves her children for three years to, to pursue her career. Um, you know, it, it's extremely uncomfortable watch, really. I thought it was a brilliant film, but um, that introduces the idea of, I think she calls herself an unnatural mother. Mm. Um, so, you know, some of these themes are being explored, but but um, yes, when I, when I came to write the book, um, I did think that um, they were sort of uh, conflicts and, and, and um, nuanced um, uh, aspects of motherhood that perhaps needed a bit more attention. Mm, I think you're completely right. And they still feel, even those great examples you've given us, they still feel very taboo subjects, don't they? I mean, like, you know, part of the um, appeal or the the sort of intrigue around the uh, Ferrante story and then mm. obviously the film is the fact that it's exploring this quite kind of tricky subject. And people do feel... I think they still feel quite uncomfortable with these revelations from women that, you know, everything is not perfect as a mother or that you might have some kind of sense of ambivalence, which seems crazy when we let men have an awful lot of ambivalence about, you know, having children and giving up their lives or the idea of giving up certain things to have a child and kind of maybe abandoning their families, you know, because they decide they don't want to do it anymore. I completely agree. I think I think if a man decides to go off and, you know, on some big job for a few years, I don't think people would bat an eyelid or certainly not to the same extent no. that they do it with um, with Emma Ferrante's book. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think motherhood is still a, it's a sacred institution. It's 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 so venerated. It has been for millennia um, mm. and, uh, you know, caring for children is, is seen as something that's innate in women. And the idea that you might not bond with your child immediately is laden with guilt, I think, and shame. Mm. And I guess particularly for um I think particularly maybe for women like you're talking about, like Stevie, who have very successful lives before they become mothers. And one automatically assumes in a sense that the that these women who live these brilliant lives might go on to very smooth transitions into motherhood and be very successful at that. And it comes and it comes as a surprise to Stevie in the novel that it's not plain sailing and it does have, you know, issues. Um, but she's really fascinating because there is this other you, you know the book is very brilliantly told that you've got the kind of storyline in the present where she's got her her new baby and she's trying to kind of you know bond with uh with him but then you've also got this kind of backstory folding out behind her of her time in New York and this very very different life that she lived um and I'm not for a minute suggesting that you are Stevie or Stevie is you but clearly I think from uh from reading your CV you must have drawn a little bit on your own experience of moving to New York and working in quite a kind of high-powered environment for Stevie's backstory is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I, I worked in New York for uh, about six years, um, first at Condé Nast Traveller magazine uh, and then at a travel startup. And uh, yes, it, it was, you know, it was a fantastic time. And I certainly drew on my experiences of living in the city, um, you know, when I was when I was writing those those bits of the novel and, and really enjoyed going back to New York because when I was writing, I was, you know, I was writing uh, from London and um, and I had two small children. Um, so, yes, it, it was, you know, I was I was living a very different life um, from from Stevie's life. I was going to say, did it make you feel nostalgic kind of revisiting old haunts or kind of, you know, on the page? Or did it make you feel, was it kind of better, do you think, to have a bit of distance between you and um, your past, both kind of, you know, geographically and in terms of time to be able to write about it or fictionalise it in this way? Probably, yes. I, I think I did feel nostalgic, though. Yes. I mean, I really fell in love with New York when I when I lived there. I really fell in love with the, the city itself. Um, I remember the first sort of couple of months I lived there, partly because I was just terrified of taking the metro, the subway. I, I thought I was going to get <laughs> lost. Um, I walked everywhere. So I walked from Chelsea from downtown Manhattan when I was where I was living at the time, all the way up to Times Square to the Condé Nast building. And 
just was just you know blown away by the architecture and you know the tall buildings and the wide avenues and the the way the sun sort of bounced off the buildings and yeah it was it was, it was a, a really wonderful time and it seems like a bit of a cliche to say it but I think the book as well to me it felt a bit like a love letter to the city like you kind yeah. of you, you know you depict so uh, you depict New York so brilliantly I think in the book you talk about how the cat the way the characters I love the way they talk about the city and they talk about their lives in the city um and it really makes you it made me really kind of think that I really want to go and live in New York at some point let's put it that way <laughs> that was definitely yeah part of the idea and really I think Stevie you know she 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 has a relationship I don't want to give too much away but but uh and she but, but really she falls in love with her job uh, and she falls you know she, she falls for the city so um yes I think Love Letter to New York is, is is a great description you've explained that this is a side of motherhood that you wanted to talk about but can you tell me a little bit in a little bit more detail about where the initial kind of nugget or idea came from to write this particular novel Kate yes so the idea came from conversations I had with friends when we were in our early 30s and living in New York we had jobs we really enjoyed I was working for Condé Nast Traveller and, and a travel startup and we were mostly single. There were no sort of particularly significant people in our lives. And we, we talk about whether we wanted to have children mm. uh, and if so, how we'd go about it. And we talked about egg freezing and sperm donation and, and adoption. And um, my own route to motherhood was, was fairly conventional in the end. But um, I thought <laughs> it might be interesting to take that idea and sort of run with it and, and think about what the ramifications of a woman um, who had a child on her own um, and, and left her life and career to, to do that might be and, and see where she ended up. And, and that's how I ended up with Stevie. Did you know anyone, any of your friends who have chosen this route or something more similar to this route than yourself? Yes, I do know people who've, who've chosen this route. And did you find yourself sort of drawing on their experiences or were you writing entirely from fiction at this point? Not particularly, no. She's her own character with her own backstory, which which explains um, to an extent, you know, why why she finds it difficult to, um, to, to to bond with her child, which is obviously one of one of the themes of the book. Talk about a few other things in the novel later on in this episode, but let's dive into the main questions now. First up, uh, Kate, I'd love you to tell me about a couple of books that are currently on your bedside table. So first of all, um, my first book is What I Loved by Siri Hustvedt. Um, mm. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Lucy, but this is actually a reread for me. I first read it about seven years ago, and I think it came out in about 2003. Um, and it's a New York novel. Um, it is set in, in Manhattan, in Soho, uh, from the 70s, I think, till about the 90s. Um, and it follows uh, two slash three couples, actually, because of this divorce, um, Leo and Erica and Bill and Lucille and then his second wife Violet they they all work in this art scene in New York uh, Bill is a painter um, Leo who narrates the, the, the book is um, an art historian uh, and it, it's in three quite distinct parts the first part introduces the, the characters and their sort of intermingled lives making crazy art all that kind of stuff living in in lofts in Soho one above the other and uh, having children, Mark and Matthew, um, in quick um, succession. Um, and then the second part begins um, very abruptly with a death. And even though this is the second time I was reading this book, I was still, I gasped. I mean, I think it's one of the most shocking lines I can think of, really, in sort of contemporary literature. Um, and that death, and then there's another death at the end of the book, actually, at the end of that section, um, 
uh, sets the scene scene for for the second section and, and everyone is kind of coming to terms with it and dealing with it in different ways um it's incredibly heartbreaking um and then the third part of the book um which is one of the reasons i really like it is is completely different in tone really it's sort of part thriller part murder mystery um it's really pacey um and uh you know you're you're, you're following these characters or the remaining characters um one of the sons in particular mark um who is is quite us sort of unknowable even to himself um, and um, really, it's a book about sort of loss and love. Um, and I think the way I interpret it, it's got it's it's quite complex and it's got a lot of quite complex imagery as well. But it's really about it, it's about our perceptions of each other, really, and how we experience people and events in different ways, and how people how we project our expectations of, of people onto them. Mm. what we see and, and what what eludes us um and I just think it's really beautifully written it's in quite sort of plain unfussy prose um but yeah it's just a wonderful story about complex relationships and um I'm sort of embarking on my second book at the moment and there are definitely some complex relationships in there <laughs> and a couple of deaths as well so part of the reason I picked this up was sort of out of inspiration uh, looking for inspiration and um yeah it certainly delivered on that so um I thoroughly recommend it that's a brilliant recommendation. Do you remember when you first read it? You're saying it's a reread. I was do. It? Yes, actually, I was. On, I remember I was on holiday in Mexico with uh, my my husband and our one year old. And um, yes, I can I have very clear recollections of, re- of of reading it, and again feeling it completely heartbroken by you know some aspects of the book, and but but just you know so just so impressed with um, the way it develops and that that you know really compelling third section. Um, yeah it's it's a really yeah it's a beautiful literary novel I suppose and you know obviously set in in New York York, one of my favorite places do you often go back and reread sort of favorite novels or as you say is this specifically because you're hoping it will need some kind of inspiration I I don't often actually I mean I I do read a lot of of very contemporary stuff there are a couple of authors I reread like um, Virginia Woolf um, always have time for her, um, but uh, but 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 no, I, I have been thinking recently that it's a good idea to reread, you know, classics or, or, or books that have really influenced you in the past, and, and remember why you like them. And um, yes, yeah, so I think I'm going to do a bit more of that in the future. I find it's always so fascinating when you read a book, particularly like something like this, where when you first read it, it made um, it had a real impact on mm. you. And I'm always intrigued as to second time round whether it will have mm. the same sort of impact or something different. And it sounds really fascinating that actually, like you say, that even if you know what's coming sort of plot wise, you're still quite taken aback by it in the moment. It's clearly exceptionally well written, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Incredibly powerful. Absolutely. And I definitely saw different things and and different imagery in it this time around. Yeah. You're making me want to go back and reread it because it's been a while since I um, read it too. And what's your second novel? It's something a little bit different, isn't it? Yes. The second one is uh, The Bread the Devil Need by a writer called Lisa Allen Agostini. And the reason I came to this was because it's on the long list for the Women's Prize. Um, and I think probably like lots of people, I always sort of aim to read the whole long list and obviously only manage, you know, I don't know, three or four or something. But um, still but, good going, <laughs> still impressive. <laughs> uh, but I thought this was wonderful, actually. It's a really beautiful, uh, powerful uh, book. It's set in Trinidad in Port of Spain. Um, Lisa Allen and Agostini is I think it's her first adult novel actually I think she's written a couple of YA novels and she's also a stand-up comedian impressively oh wow uh, yeah and and um, it's written in Trinidadian Creole um, so um, 
really lyrical. Uh, I think the writing really adds to obviously the sense of place and also the atmosphere. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's on a really tough subject. It's uh, and it's a tough read. Um, it's it's about the cycle of sexual and violent abuse that the lead character, Alethea, has um, suffered since she was a young child. Um, and it also talks about um, racism, colorism. She's singled out for having for having light skin. Um, it's it's I think the reason I liked it really was because of this incredibly powerful character, Alethea. Um, we meet her when she's nearing 40, but she looks much younger, according to her. Um, she <laughs> meets her, um, her uh, partner, uh, Leo, who, who, who beats her. Um, she's having an affair with her boss uh, from the fashion boutique that she works in. And she takes uh, sort of refuge in, 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 in books, which I really enjoyed. Uh, doesn't really trust women because she's been hurt by them in the past. Um, and when another woman is shot by her jealous lover outside the boutique that Alethea works at, um, she determines to to change her ways and um, and escape um, the situation that she's in. Uh, oh, and wow. her adopted brother Colin also sort of makes an appearance and, and sort of helps her with that. And I, I think you know I think the reason it was so effective um, was because I mean it's obviously a very serious subject, but it's not a depressing book at all. Um, it's it's incredibly engaging and actually fairly upbeat, I found, um, uh, despite the fact that really um, Alethea's abuse is kind of woven into her story in, in, in a sort of a, a amazing way, really. I mean, you can sort of feel her, her wince because she's so conscious of, of, you know, her violent past. There's one scene um, where a friend kind of jokingly throws a magazine at her and she sort of cowers. Um and there's definitely sort of humour in there as well. I think um, Agustin's very good at um, sort of juxtaposition. So she'll be talking about Leo teaching Alethea to swim. And then she'll talk about the licks that um, Leo gives her, um, sort of pathos, I suppose. Um, uh, and, you know, it's really, it's about, it's a story about resilience and survival uh, and the opportunity to escape. Um and yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was really, a really great read. And I hope it goes on to the shortlist. We'll keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> Next up then, I think you're going to tell me about a particular TV series that you've been enjoying or watching at least recently, right? Yes, it's on at the moment, actually. It's called We Crashed, which I think is a terrible name, but it's a very <laughs> good series, highly entertaining. It's on Apple TV and it's about the rise and fall of um, the office space company WeWork, um, again in New York. So this is the company that was valued at a whopping great 47 billion at its height, and then crashed, as you might imagine from the, the title of the series. My book is, is set in part in a co-working members club, not unlike WeWork. So naturally I was interested uh, to, to see this series. Um, yeah, it stars Jared Leto as uh, this charismatic Israeli founder um, and Anne Hathaway as his wife um, and sort of muse. Um, and he's just sort of a founder whisperer. She's very new agey and she's she's also the cousin of Gwyneth Paltrow in real life. Um, so a great cast. And it begins with when Adam um, Newman is asked off the, his own board after a failed um, IPO of the company. Um, and really, I don't know. I think it's 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 just a sort of tale of of I don't know, sort of char charisma and storytelling. I mean, Jared Leto's is just you know he's the most 
he plays the most extraordinary founder. I mean, that this is a this is a man who, despite the fact that the company seems to be sort of incapable of, of turning any sort of profit or making any kind of amount of money. I mean, it, it, at some points it loses something like two million dollars a day. He's just so persuasive at um, yeah p- persuading these investors to invest huge amounts of money in, in the company. Um, and uh, you know, Rebecca, his wife, uh, is you know, fantastic, fascinating character who calls him a supernova, um, and and tells him really kind of eggs him on and tells him to do what he believes in, um, and to, to build this community which is inspired by his time living in in a kibbutz, the happiest time of his life. Um, and it's just interesting about you know the all-consuming work culture of of New York of that time in the 2010s and and the kind of blurring of work and play. There's some very entertaining scenes. Um, they have one bit where they uh, a riff on TGI. Thank God it's Friday. So they have thank God it's Monday um, when they have <laughs> when they have you know, tequila shots in the office and and Adam is firing these t-shirts into the crowd and then it all goes slightly wrong at this summer camp that they all go on but yet all these millennials who are kind of drinking the kool-aid and uh, you know slash being slightly exploited and not being paid very much money um and you sort of wonder as well you know how genuine are are, are the attempts uh, by this duo to build this community um mm. are, or are they just in it for the money i suspect a bit more of the latter than the former but <laughs> rebecca Anne hathaway has one of a brilliant line um where she says that their 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 mission is to elevate the world's consciousness um which sounds, <laughs> it's just so funny and and, uh, and far-fetched but you know that becomes the the, the, the company's mission statement so you know, it, it's it's it, pretty mind-boggling and and hugely entertaining and uh, yeah, a, a good watch and also the story of a relationship because um, Adam Neumann and, and Rebecca, you know, they they have this this uh, amazing bond and um, you know uh, they're still together apparently. I think five or six children later, uh, wow. despite the failure of the company. Um, so so yeah, it's it's a very interesting story. Well, I have to say, you've now sold it to me. I was a bit dubious before. I think slightly because it just felt like the whole sort of WeWork crash had happened so recently. And I'm always a bit dubious about like, sort of jumping on the really quick bandwagon to make a show about something, which is, you know, not even history, let's put it that way. But you've sort of made me think that maybe I need to give it a go now and actually give it a bit of a chance if it's so well acted. Give it a go. I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of it's it's glossy and glitzy and, and, and fun. And um, yes, I mean, I think it's worth a watch. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask, actually, I mean, I know you just mentioned it, but because like you say, you've got this um, sort of startup in the book, this members club, which is um, obviously and they and they're so keen on that idea of work. I love the bit in the in the novel where you have the sort of founder of that saying that, you know, this is a club about this is the whole point of you know being at this club is so you can work and you can kind of you know work all hours and obviously that wouldn't kind of work in London in quite the same way because New York is this culture of kind of people wanting to work and um, and it sounds like that's quite similar to what is going on um, in WeWork. When you were writing your sort of fictional version of this startup, did you have anything in particular in mind? I mean, had you already been following what was happening at somewhere like WeWork? Was it kind of you know obviously that kind of thing was in the headlines and sort of everywhere we looked and, and were you modeling it on certain real um, startups? I worked at a startup in the latter part of, um, of my time in New York. It was a tech startup. It was travel rather than mm. rather than this kind of thing. But yes, I, I, I definitely, you know, I, I thought back to, to those days and, and that sort of 
feeling of being part of something and, and building something and working with a lot of very young, very driven people um, who, who, yeah, yeah, really enjoyed work. And, you know, it did feel very different from, from my time in London. It feels already that that, you know, even though I've just said in a sense that it's so it's such recent history as to me to not be that interested yet in watching the TV show. It does feel like it captures a particular time, though, reading the novel. I was so kind of taken of like, oh, God, this is a kind of even though I've never been personally involved in startups, I've known people who've worked for them. And this kind of culture has become so um, I think we're also familiar with it now, these kind of these spaces. It, I, I don't know what their future is obviously kind of post-pandemic so maybe this was a particular time and place right? I think so but I also think that post-pandemic we've, we've got to a stage now where, where I mean I certainly I'm quite you know I've been at home for, for a couple of years now and, and I, I would absolutely relish being being somewhere <laughs> like we were. <laughs> Desperate to get back to other people. Yeah and I think actually also as enormous offices sort of slightly dissolve and big companies think maybe they don't need those sorts of spaces that actually companies like WeWork will become more popular. That's true actually I suppose and, and when people do want to get out of the house maybe even for a couple of days a week but they don't want to necessarily commute all the way to the office they might choose somewhere more kind of locally that they can access but isn't at home right? Exactly where you know where they see other people, they can interact with other people, and and yeah, yeah, exactly. Leave leave their kitchen tables. Exactly. Our shells be back in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Kate Maxwell about the joys of being back in the office and being able to leave the kitchen table. Next up, Kate, could you tell me about a book that made you think about feminism in a new way, please? Sure. So I've chosen a work of fiction, which might not be your usual answer to this question, Lucy. Anything uh, and everything goes here. Don't worry. (laughs) I've chosen Matrix by Lauren Groff. And I love Lauren Groff. I I loved Fates and Furies, which is actually another book I've read more than once. Mm. Um, I love that uh, dual narrative thing, you know, a marriage told from 
both perspectives um, uh, and the, the character uh, Lotto's sort of creativity being undermined by his wife Mathilde's. Mm. I thoroughly recommend that if you haven't read it. But, uh, but Matrix is completely different. It is um, about the life of Marie de France. Not much is known about her. Um, she was one of the first women to write in French as a poet. Um, I think she was connected to the Plantagenet court and to Ellen of Aquitaine. Um, and it's possible that she spent some time in um, an abbey. Um, but, uh, but, but that's about it. So Lauren um, Groff takes this character. And, and the reason that I was attracted to it and, and the sort of link to feminism is that because I think when I think about sort of medieval times, I think of women spinning, looking after children, um, surviving really, um, mm. and, and not doing, um, you know, particularly powerful stuff. But uh, this book has made me think um, of that time as, as as having potential for women to be powerful and uh, to be leaders, um, because um, her her character is 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 exactly that. So she takes Marie de France, and she expels her from the French court under Eleanor of Aquitaine, another powerful woman, and she sends her to England to an abbey. Um, and um, she's Mary is, is is not pleased about this at all at first, but <laughs> she comes around to it, and uh, she really turns the fortunes of the abbey uh, around uh, first mm. as a prioress and eventually as an abbess. Um, uh, she does things like um, she's really entrepreneurial. Actually, she she gets the nuns fishing for trout. Um, she gets them spinning silk. Um, she makes the, the the people who rent the land pay up for the first time. She makes the abbey independent of men and, and she gives nuns um, jobs according to their abilities rather than as a kind of form of penance as they had mm -hmm. before, which very, which very much I think fits with sort of mo modern theories of management. Um, and she turns this abbey really into a kind of self-sufficient community and, and a feminist utopia. And, but she's, she's, you know, she's not entirely blameless. She's not just doing this for the love of God or for the lo love of, of Eleanor, who, who she is in love with. Um, there's a lot of ego or some ego, at least, at stake as well. Uh, and she talks about sort of her legacy at times. And she even sort of crosses the line, really. Um, she takes on the role of priest um, and, and she gives, gives mass and listens to confessions, which is obviously a complete no-no at that time. Um, so I, I just, you know, I just thought it was a wonderful, she was a wonderful character um, and, and utterly convincing, really. And, and even if, you know, Marie de France was a completely different character, I, I you know, I choose to believe Lauren Groff's account uh, <laughs> that she was this sort of fe powerful feminist. Um, and, you know, I really, I think that the point really of historical fiction is to write these people who are often women back into history and Matrix does that brilliantly. Mm. There's something so freeing, surely, about being able to pick um, a historical figure like Marie about someone, like you say, who very little is known and then fill in the gaps and fill them in in this kind of, you know, glorious way that you wouldn't be able to do with nonfiction, but that fiction gives you this opportunity to sort of invent a whole life, but have it based on reality, right? Exactly. I, it sort of feels of just enough was known about Marie, but she was she's, she's basically a blank canvas for, for Lauren yeah. Groff, which is, which is perfect. Yeah. I also love that the prose, it's sort of really rich and dense. And, you know, you've got this feeling of the, it brings to life the English countryside so wonderfully. You know, there's a line I wrote down, actually, that the hot, still August days with the struck iron shimmer of insect noise just gets you straight there. I think there's a lot there's a lot of stench as well because these <laughs> nuns 
<laughs> washed very seldom. But uh, also there's the sort of scent of flowers in the English countryside, which I just love. It's kind of incredible, I think, that Lauren wrote this because not only did she have to put herself in this, you know, completely different time period about very little note, but, you know, she's writing this from her home in Florida. She's not even here in the UK and she's conjured up this wonderful, you know, fifth century England, right? And like you say, right down to the smells and the and the kind of the texture of life on a, on a daily basis. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I always think that genre shifting is so impressive and, you know, Fates and Furies was, was a contemporary novel and this is just completely different, as you say. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, another um, historical novel that I have read fairly recently was, was Hamnet, which obviously is, is the wonderful story of um, Shakespeare's wife and, and son. Um, and other children uh, by Maggie O'Farrell and you know again Maggie O'Farrell I think that's her first historical novel and and she does it so brilliantly. Have you read Margaret the First by Danielle Dutton that's another one that I've enjoyed in the last few years. I haven't. It's really good it takes again a sort of a real historical figure Margaret this this woman I can't remember what her surname was off the top of my head but she was married to a sort of an English lord Um, but again it sort of fills in the blanks that we don't know in history it's sort of you know uh, evokes this entire very sort of decadent um fascinating kind of portrait of, of life at that time but is also sort of slightly experimental it's a very short novel but it's it's you know one of the best things i've read in a while so oh, great definitely put on then there. there we are we've got some recommendations <laughs> for listeners you haven't read matrix first and then move on to these these other wonderful historical novels and last question today kate if i may could you tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you particularly admire yes this is probably the hardest question of all because there are so many exactly <laughs> we like to, we like to end on a high on a kind of a hard high let's put it that way yes so i've chosen josie norton who is the co founder and CEO of Choose Love, uh, which is a charity uh, based in the UK. And the reason I've chosen her is because um, obviously Ukraine is on my mind a lot at the moment. And um, as we enter another refugee crisis, um, with millions of millions of people fleeing Ukraine, I've been thinking a lot about Josie Norton, who is someone that I met several years ago and interviewed. Um, And she set up this um, amazing humanitarian organisation in 2015, um, which was uh, when the, the Syrian refugee crisis was at its height. Mm. Um, she, she came from the music industry, completely different experience, absolutely no experience of, of um, charities or of any kind. Um, and I think she decided over lunch, she was so moved by sort of seeing images of the Syrian refugee crisis to, to start up a, a crowdfunding page um, and to take supplies to Calais. Um, and to, to the camp there, and she ended up working in, in the camps in Calais um, for, for quite a while. And, um, and then uh, the charity was called Help, Help Refugees, and she was born. They've raised tens of millions for uh, a grassroots organisation. So, so they don't, you know, they, they, they invest in, in existing um, organisations, whether that is uh, rescue boats or uh, some women's community projects. Um, and uh, and they're, they're now sort of raising an enormous amount of money for, for Ukraine. I think I read that they've already raised about $7 million. Um, and I just think, you know, she's she's such an understated person. We've just been talking about Adam Newman, the uh, founder of WeWork. <laughs> the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Absolute opposite end of the spectrum, like a complete sort of uh, some extrovert and, and a charismatic in every single way. Well, which is not to say that Josie's not charismatic, but she, you just you just feel that, um, you know, her heart is in exactly the right 
place. Um, she talks about the contagious nature of compassion, which I think is quite interesting. She, she talks about, you know, people want to help and they want to give um, and, and they're moved by, by crises like these, but they don't know how. And she's really, mm. uh, she's built a framework for people to do that in, in a very kind of, uh, sort of modern way, I suppose. She's used the sort of digital tools um, uh, you know that that are available now from from social media. She's used that a lot to uh, for for donations and and to to rally volunteers and to show people where their money's going. She's used um, she's worked with the designer Catherine Hamnett to uh, to create sort of merchandise, um, mm-hmm. which has raised a lot of money. Uh, she's had these amazing pop ups um, pop up stores where you can buy real products. I remember when they were in the one came to London a few years ago before Christmas and you could buy technically go and buy Christmas presents there. But it was, you know, you donating the money to um, the charity. Right. Yes. And you leave with nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It was very clever. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think it had been done before. Um, and, and she's, you know, uses music partnerships. Um, and I just think she's made, you know, a, a, a crisis and a cause that uh, refugees and displaced people around the world, um, which can be quite difficult to. I suppose to understand she's made it sort of tangible and, and easy to help with. And um, yes, I mean, all sorts of charities doing incredible work um, in Ukraine um, at the moment and around Ukraine. But, um, you know, she's, she's definitely one to watch and she's always one to watch. Absolutely. Perfect. Well, you've given us some wonderful recommendations for books to read, recommendations for what to watch and now recommendations on how to donate to help the cause in Ukraine. So that's what more could I ask for, basically? Thank you so much, Kate. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you for coming along. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Kate Maxwell. And tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture.